Today's verses come from Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, create, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Um, back in 2021, I preached a, a short series called This Is Us that was aimed at defining the church, setting out a, a definition of what the church is, the church at the, at the global level and also the church at the local level. If you weren't here for that back in 2021, I encourage you to go back and listen to those three messages. Again, the aim was to ask, who are we as the church? And then to answer that question from the scriptures. But starting today, we want to ask a slightly different question. Today we're going to start asking, what does it look like to be a member of a local church? For each of us as individuals, what does it mean for us to be a part of this local church called New Hope Fellowship? And then to help us answer that question, we're going to look closely at our church covenant. This is our church covenant right here. There are copies of this document up here you can grab on your way out. I encourage you to grab one of them, uh, maybe put it in the back of your Bible, read it, think about it as we work through it as a, as a congregation. A covenant is an agreement or, or a set of promises between two or more people or two or more parties. Um, it spells out each party's commitment and each party's responsibility to do certain things or to not do certain things. Our church covenant spells out for us our commitments to this church and to one another as members of New Hope Fellowship. Now, everyone who's uh, been received as a member of New Hope Fellowship, you've been asked at some point to read our statement of faith, which sets out our core beliefs as a church, but also to read our church covenant and then to sign off on those documents to, to, to publicly and formally give assent to what you find in the statement of faith and in our church covenant. And then when we bring in new members, you may have been here for this, or you remember when you went through this process. When we bring in new members, we, those new members will stand up here 
And together as a congregation of members of this church, we will read aloud the 11 lines of our church covenant. So we do that a couple of times a year at least. But in the seven plus years that I've been here, we've never actually studied this covenant together outside of our membership class. We do it in those membership classes. But in this gathering, we never really have looked closely that I know of at this covenant. So that's what we're going to do for the next couple of months. It's a way for us to remember and to celebrate what God has called us to as members of this community. And it's also a chance for us to recommit ourselves, as, as we're going to read today, to, to renew our commitment to one another. Now, if you're not a member of this church, I hope you're still going to find this relevant for you. For one, it might help you determine whether you want to and should be a member of this church. But I hope you'll also find lots in this covenant that, that will encourage you, that will help direct you and instruct you, perhaps challenge you as well. Like I said, there are 11 lines in our church covenant or clauses. We're going to spend one Sunday on each of them, and it's going to take us pretty much to Christmas. So before we jump into line one of our covenant today, I want to invite you to, to pray with me. Let's come before the Lord together again. Our Father, we know that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. That is, you make promises and you keep your promises. You enter into grace-filled covenants with your people, and you never break those covenants. We thank you. We thank you for your steadfast, promise-keeping, never-ending love and faithfulness. We want to resemble you, Lord. We want, to, we want to be like you in that, in the promises and the commitments we make to one another as a congregation. So help us, Lord, to understand the weightiness of these commitments, but also, Lord, give us the grace to walk faithfully, to walk them out in practical ways, and to forgive one another when we fail. And to come back to you again, knowing that there's always more grace in you for us, that your grace is greater than our sin and our shortcomings and our failures. So we're looking to you this afternoon, Lord. Guide us and direct us into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the very first line of our church covenant reads this way. It says, having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, we do now relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. This is kind of an introductory line. You'll find that the rest of the covenant is made up of oaths or promises, but here it's kind of a, a frame-setting introduction to the whole rest of the document. And we're going to see two things here, two simple things. One, as a church, we're brought together by God's grace. And two, as a church, we depend fully on God's grace. So we're brought together. This whole thing, whatever this is, this body, this... <laughs> it's been formed by the grace of God. And in order for it to sustain, in order for us to exist as the church, we must depend fully on the grace of God. So those are the two simple things we're going to see today. And the passage that Thomas read to us is going to help us unpack those two points. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, please do open it up. You could also follow along up here. We'll, we'll project these passages as we read them. Ephesians 2, Paul here is writing to Christians in the big city of Ephesus. 
people there make up a church or perhaps even multiple churches. And for the most part, the people who lived in Ephesus in the first century were Gentiles. That is, they were not Jewish. Most of them were not. And that matters. That little distinction is important because for one thing, Paul is writing as a Jewish man. And the God that he represents, the God that he serves as a messenger for, the God who he represents as an apostle, was always known by many as the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. Not only that, but for any Jewish person living in the first century, the number one most important distinction, the most significant detail and distinction that could exist between two people was this. Are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? For Jews living in that era, it was the basis of their identity. We are Jews, you are not, they would say. We are God's people, you are not God's people. It's a fundamental distinction for people at the time. So, so Paul is writing to this predominantly Gentile population, and he's reminding them that they're Gentiles, as if they need to remember this, right? But they need to remember it. And if you happen to be a Gentile, a non-Jew, you need to remember this too, as do I. Look at what he says. And, 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 and again, if you are not Jewish here this morning, he's talking to you. He's talking to us. So, so let's make this personal. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you non-Jews in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were not connected to Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying, remember this. This is who you were. Here's what you were called. You were called the uncircumcision. That's an offensive term, by the way. Your identity in, is found in the fact that you're not one of us, Paul says. And notice that there's this emphasis on the, on the flesh. He's saying you were physically different. And here's why that matters. Verse 12, it means you were separated, you were alienated, you were strangers to God and his promises. You were on the outside. In other words, you were cut off. You had no connection to God's son. You had no connection to God's people. You didn't even know his promises. You were spiritually hopeless. You were spiritually orphaned, he's saying. No connection to Jesus. No connection to the nation of Israel. No connection to God's covenant promises. You are without hope and without God. Separate. And the reason they would be without hope and without God is for at least two reasons. One, because they were not Jewish by lineage and heritage. By, they, they weren't Jewish. But also they were alienated from God because of their sin. Because of their sin. One truth that we see throughout the Bible is that sin always causes alienation. You see, sin never actually brings people together in any lasting good way. The, the ultimate outcome of sin is always fracture in relationship, division, a falling apart. So, 
This means, this is in regards to our relationship to God. Sin alienates us from him, but our sin also alienates us from other people. And perhaps you can think of examples of how you've seen that happen in your life. How have you seen your own sin at times leave you feeling so far from God? How have you seen the sins of others against you leaving you feeling far from God and alone because you've been so hurt by others? How have you seen your sin create alienation between you and people that you were once close to? Now you barely talk anymore. You barely, maybe you can't even stand each other anymore because of what your sin has done to the relationship or because of what their sin has done to the relationship. We can come up with examples how this has happened in our lives, but we don't even have to look just personally. We can look globally and see this. It's why we have to pray in the way that Tim just led us in prayer. Because sin of all sorts has deteriorated relationships led to hostility and war and genocide and threats of genocide sin always fractures society it always fractures relationships but God's plan has always been to reverse all that to reverse the effects of sin and he tells us about that in verse 13 so look at verse 13 of Ephesians 2 it says but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were, one, you were once alienated, separated, hopeless. He's brought you near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Sin builds walls of hostility. God is all about destroying dividing walls of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us to both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, God's plan was always to bring people back to himself. God's plan has always been to reconcile a people to himself. And not only that, but his plan has been to reconcile people to one another as well. In one fell swoop, to bring them back into relationship with him and into relationship with one another. Even Jews and Gentiles. Even Jews and Gentiles. God's plan all along was to take his people, Israel, and graft into these people, add to these people, Gentiles. He had always planned to gather people who had for centuries been alienated from one another. People who were different in so many millions of ways. To bring people together who had historically avoided and looked down on one another and even killed each other and sought to genocidally wipe out each other. God's purpose all along has been to bring such people together and forge them into a new humanity. A new humanity with just one thing in common. Their faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith in Jesus Christ. The only unifying factor... That's why 1 Peter chapter 2 calls the church a chosen race. And by a race, it doesn't mean an ethnicity. It means a people group. 
God has created a, a new people group defined by one marking this one mark, one distinction, their connection to Jesus Christ by faith. They have been washed by his blood. They've been forgiven through faith in him and have been welcomed into this family, as we're going to see. He calls them a new humanity, a new race. He calls us a new race. That doesn't mean that our differences all disappear, right? When a Jewish man and an Arab man come to faith in Jesus, their differences don't just dissolve immediately. But the hostility does. Oh, the hostility dies. Jesus died to kill the hostility. There's an implication here for all of us, and it's this, that faith in Jesus transcends all other connections. We may relate to others based on all kinds of commonalities. Like, we all feel comfortable about certain types of people, right? Maybe people that share our particular views, or share our ethnicity, share our background, that grew up where we grew up, that have some, some of the same memories, right? I love talking to people about what it was like growing up in the 80s. I don't know why I enjoy that so much. Like reminiscing, oh, it was great back then, wasn't it? When you make a reference, at, like, you know, a reference about something in the 80s, and, and someone doesn't get it. It's why I love, I love talking to Ryan so much about the 80s. When, when you make a reference and no one gets it, you feel so alone. You feel like, oh, man, I feel alienated. Stranger. <laughs> but when you can connect over something as simple as the TV shows you used to watch growing up in the New York metro area in 1983 or something like that, it, like, you connect. We can connect with people over the schools that we went to. We can connect with people over the languages that we speak, the foods that we like to eat, all sorts of, and we, and we want to celebrate those commonalities. We want to enjoy them. But, 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 faith in Jesus transcends all other connections. This means that if you have been brought by divine, in the, in, the, in the words of our covenant, if you've been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are part of a new humanity. You don't cease to be whatever else you are. You don't cease to be American or male or female. You don't cease to be Arabic or Korean American or African American or, or Latino American. You don't cease to be any of those things. But the core of who you are now has changed. The core of who you are, your true and deepest identity is now in Christ. He died to give you that new identity, to make you a part of this new humanity. This means that if I meet, if I meet a 49-year-old son of Brazilian immigrants who grew up in New Jersey and has been married to a Dominican woman for 20 years and has five kids and is bald, we will have lots of things in common. We'll have lots to talk about. That's basically me, right? That's like... But if that person is not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I have more in common with Cynthia. I have more in common with you, Cynthia Semsel, than I do with that person. I have more in common with Wolfgang or Leslie or Lizzie than I do with that person with whom I share all these commonalities. connection that we share in Christ runs deeper. We are part of this new humanity. 
we are radically alike. And by radically, I mean at the root. Radical comes from the word root. At the root, we, I might have many surface connections and commonalities with any number of people in this room, but the root connection that we have in Jesus is central. It's foundational. There are implications for all sorts. There's all sorts of implications for this. It's, it's one of, it's, I'll give you one implication with regard to marriage, okay? In, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians tells us that as if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of this new humanity. This new humanity is made up of single people and married people, and that's fine. You can be a new person in Jesus and choose to live a single life, or you can choose to be married. You have the freedom to do either one. Only, he says, marry in the Lord. That's the one, that's the one decision. He says, you must be married in the Lord. That is, in other words, you must, if you are joined to Jesus by faith, it only makes sense for you to marry someone else who is also joined to Jesus by faith. You're a part of this new humanity. You must marry someone else who's also part of this new humanity in Jesus through faith in Christ. Yeah? It doesn't make sense for you to be joined to Jesus, but then to join yourself by covenant, by marriage to someone who is not joined to Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Just one implication. And, just, and by the way, when I say that, that our connection in Christ is the deepest, uh, the, 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 the deepest con- commonality that we can have, that doesn't mean that all those other commonalities don't matter. They do. And like I said, they should be celebrated. And it also doesn't mean that just because someone else happens to follow Jesus and you follow Jesus and you're both Christians, that you're going to have us, you're just going to get along just fine all the time. It doesn't mean that at all. You may, in fact, have trouble getting along with someone else who loves Jesus as much as you do, maybe even more than you do. But, but, in the conflict, in the difficulty of that relationship, you will have, as fellow believers, you will have a basis for, your disagree- for, for managing and navigating your disagreements. You'll have a basis for forgiving one another and accepting one another in spite of your differences because of your common faith in Jesus. It won't make the relationship easy all the time, but it means that there's hope and there's a way forward for your relationship because your disagreements at this level don't, don't diminish, they don't negate the root connection that you share in Christ. So Jesus died to create a new humanity. But not only does he create a new humanity, he brings us together into this new community. Look at what he says in, in what Paul says in verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The apostle Paul is saying, not only are you part of this new humanity, But because you have believed in Jesus, you now have a home in Christ's community. You have a home in God's household. Welcome home. He uses different different images, right? He says, you have a place in this household. He also says, now you are fellow citizens of this commonwealth, this nation. You used to be on the outside. 
now you're in. And it means that you have all the rights that you didn't have when you were an outsider, when you were unwelcomed, when you were estranged. Now you're a member of this commonwealth and a member of this household. Like I said, he's mixing metaphors here. It's almost like, you know, he says, you're, you're a citizen, you're a family member. He, it's like he's using, he, he's trying to use every way that, we, every category that we use to identify ourselves as part of a community. He's using that to help us understand our membership in the community of God. He's saying, you people, you people, he even goes as far as to say, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God the Spirit. Think of a structure that's being actively built. It's growing into this holy temple of the Lord. But it's funny, you know, in in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, he uses similar imagery, but Peter describes us, Christians, members of this community, as living stones. Living stones. The idea is that a structure is being built, but it's like an organic structure. It's not just a building made of bricks and cement. It's organic. It's made of living, breathing organisms, us, who are coming together to form this living, breathing structure called the church, where Jesus says, by my spirit, I'm going to dwell in that structure. I think what, what, what gets to me is that the, the, the way that he mixes this kind of like natural organic imagery with the idea of like building something. We don't go to the temple. We are the temple, collectively. The church. The church is the only institution that God created and said, here's where I'm going to dwell, and here's the community that I'm going to use to carry out my mission, my plan to renew the whole world. So I I hope you can see something of the the amazing privilege it is to be a part of this household. Do, Do you see what it took to make you a part of this household? Verse 13 tells us it took the blood of Christ the blood of Christ. He had to be cut off. He had to be alienated and separated from the Father so that we could be brought near. That was the cost. So that peace could be given to us as as a gift for free, free to us, free entrance and welcome, but it took the costly, priceless blood of Christ. So as a church, we are brought together by God's grace. He gives us free, the free gift of welcome into his community. And secondly and lastly, as a church, we depend fully on God's grace. We depend fully on God's grace. Look at verse 20. It says there that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What this means is that the church is founded on the gospel. The, the foundation of the, the apostles and the prophets is a reference to the gospel, the news about Jesus, the news of Jesus Christ, who was the promised Messiah. He was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. He was attested to by the apostles in the New Testament. And this whole household, this building, this family, choose your metaphor, whichever one you like best, it all holds together in Jesus and in the gospel of his grace. This means, for one thing, that we cannot and must not try to build a church based on anything other than Jesus and his gospel. 
we can't let anything else be the defining characteristic of New Hope Fellowship other than Jesus and his gospel. We not, must not build a church on personal agendas, on political views, like we're a church for people on this side of the aisle, or we're a church for people who look like this or think like this. Our ethnic identity, none of these things can serve as the foundation. If, if we're ever going to say we're this kind of church, we, that this has to be we're a gospel church, we're a Jesus church. We can't be anything else. We can't let anything but faith in Jesus become the unifying characteristic of this body. I had an experience many years ago when I was a young Christian being a part of a church that I thought was very unified. They looked on the surface to be very unified. What I found is that there was uniformity, not unity. There's a difference, right? And what I found is that this church was made up of a lot of people who agreed on just about everything, it seemed. Similar preferences, similar political views, similar ideas, uh, similar culture. Everything was very uniform across the, the, the landscape of this small church. But what I found is that when disagreements started to emerge, disagreements on some of these things that we held tightly together, disagreement over secondary issues or tertiary issues, what I found is that the unity dissolved. It, it, it actually like exploded. It's as if we were a unified group of people but couldn't bear to disagree with each other on anything. Any kind of disagreement would lead to suspicion, which would in turn lead to rejection, alienation. So what I found is that our unity was based around secondary issues. Our unity was based around the, these opinions that we had and preferences that we had and a culture that we had developed as a church rather than unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we had developed was a kind of very natural unity because people tend to unify around the things that they agree on, right? That's very natural, that's normal, it's expected. But what we lacked, in hindsight, I see now, was a supernatural unity. The kind of unity that only God can create. What God intends for his church is that we experience supernatural fellowship, a supernatural bond with one another, something that can't exist anywhere else. Because we all, everyone gets it when people who, who look alike hang out and get along, right? It's normal. Or when people have the same interests, or they're like the same age, or they like the same music, or the same sports teams, or they, they have similar tastes. The world, everyone gets it when those people like hanging out and get along just fine. But what the world doesn't get is when people of diverse ages and incomes and backgrounds and life stages and political beliefs gather into a tight-knit fellowship that's marked by self-sacrifice, that's marked by serving others. Like I said, of course, we can have other things in common beyond Jesus. That's fine and that's expected, but our community cannot be founded on any commonality other than him. We have ministries at New Hope that focus specifically on certain types of people, right? So we have like a youth group. Um, I can volunteer to help the youth group. I can't join the youth group, right? I can't be a youth group student. I don't fit the description. 
specifically for youth. We have a children's ministry specifically specified. You know, we're discipling children here. We have men's discipleship groups and women's discipleship groups. Women, you cannot join a man's discipleship group. Men, you cannot join a women's discipleship group. Right? So, so we are actually grouping people according to other commonalities other than Jesus to be able to, to minister to them well. And that's fine. That's okay. But we also have to remember that what makes the church the church is not those commonalities. So we might have a discipleship group for men or a Bible study for new moms or some kind of uh, ministry support group for uh, people who work in the medical field. Those things can all work and can be wonderfully fruitful. But we need to remember that what unites the church is faith in Christ. It's faith in Jesus that brings all those people from all those different ministries into one family. That's what makes the church unique. It's the supernatural power of God that brings radical unity in the midst of diversity. And that's what communicates to, 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 to everyone, it communicates to us, and it communicates to the world that God is all about bringing together people who are different, people who are once alienated, people who, and, and making them into a household, into his family. That's partially what it means when you say we depend fully on God's grace. But when we say we depend fully on God's grace, it also means that we can't hold, we can't hold this thing together ourselves. Like, none of us is able to keep this church healthy, alive, growing, thriving on our own. No matter how gifted any one of us might be. That's why the, the, the covenant says, we do now, quote, relying on his gracious aid. Relying on his gracious aid, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We can't even keep our covenant with each other if God doesn't help us. We need his grace to be a covenant-keeping people. So as we look at the covenant that we've made, we're, we're going to be humbled, I think, at points. I know I have been. I hope you are too, so I won't be alone in it. Because it shows, as we read through these promises that we've made to one another, we start to see some of our failures, you know? And we, we see how much forgiveness we need and how much grace we need. If we're, if we're going to live out the, the, the spirit of this covenant, we'll, we'll need power and we'll need willingness from God himself. So, so that's, that's the takeaway. And I just want to give you two basic takeaways here. And the, and the first one is this. As we study this covenant, let, let it, and, and let God's word to show you your shortcomings. Let, let's be humble enough to kind of see that and receive that. Let, let these oaths show you your inadequacy to live out these promises. Here's why. Because it reminds us that he's the one that's building this thing. He's the one. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's doing it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And your failures are not going to crush the church. Your failures are not going to stop Jesus from building what he has said, promised he would build. We're not passive in that, of course. We'll see that. But he's the one that's building this thing. He's the one building this church. And he has an end in mind. And he's committed to that end. He's going to keep building this church until we'll, we as a body reach what, what Paul later will call mature manhood or mature womanhood, right? Mature humanity. Quote, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what God has in mind as he builds this church. To see us grow up together to look more and more like Jesus. The 
the fullness of who he is. God's goal is a community that accurately reflects the character and the heart and the words of Jesus. So we can humbly trust him to do that, to accomplish that, even as we study this covenant and realize how hard it is to live up to some of this. The second takeaway, finally, let's give ourselves to the work that God is doing. He is building this church. He's the one building it. He cares about this church. He's committed to it. And that's a call to us not to be passive, but to actually care too. To care about what he cares about. It's a call to actively contribute to what God is building here. To be a willing part of what God is building. That's what so much of the second half of Ephesians is all about. And it's what we're going to see this covenant very much is about. How we can actively contribute to what God is building here. So let's let's push back against the temptation to, to be passive consumers. Push back against that. Let's Let's push back against the temptation to just be a group of people who know each other at a very surface level or we just get together once a week or maybe less than that. Let's press into what it means to be a covenant community. This, this document that we're going to look at in the scriptures will help us. They'll show us what that looks like. But we will need to respond with willing, decisive intentionality if we're going to actively participate in it. It means we need to press in towards people who are different from us. Not because we have to, but because that's the beauty of what God has called us into. He's welcomed us into. And that starts with, as the covenant puts it, Repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then joining his church. Believing in the gospel, being baptized, and joining his church. If you have been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already are part of that global, universal, new humanity. You are part of that global community that God has created. But one important way that you live that out and that I need to live that out is by committing to a local church. And back in 2021, when we were talking about the identity of the church, I said this. I said, we're called to think globally and act locally. Think globally in the sense that I'm part of something much bigger than just New Hope Fellowship. If you are in Christ, you're part of a global community that spans across the ages and will exist forever. You're part of something that big. But how do you, how do you live that out? How do you embrace that? You think globally and you act locally. You commit to a local church and you serve there and you grow there and you don't just say well I'm I'm connected to people who are different from me all over the world we're one in Christ yes but how do we walk that out here How, how are we one in Christ with one another and our particular tendencies and sensibilities and foibles and sins and hurts how do we do that here our culture tends to prize autonomy I think western culture generally does The Bible says that you are made for community. That's why Paul writes to a group of people who had committed themselves to each other in Ephesus. Um, We do membership this way at New Hope Fellowship. We um, run membership classes a couple of times a year. Anyone can participate in those classes. It's a way to learn more about this church, the history of this church, what we believe, what we teach. 
It's a chance to learn more about the gospel. And then if you choose to want to apply for membership, then you share your testimony, you share a story, tell us about how you came to know Jesus and tell us about your relationship to Jesus. And finally, we stand together and we read this covenant and we affirm this family's growing. This family's growing. More God's adding more people into this community. And that all might seem like a formality, but it's much more than a formality. It, it, for one, it protects us by making us accountable to one another. We can't just cut loose. When you become a member of a local church, you communicate to the church that you want to seek the good of the body, but you also want everyone else to seek your good too. You're saying you're responsible for me and I'm responsible for you in a, in a way that I'm not responsible for everyone in the world, but within this community, we're responsible for one another. It also communicates the idea that I'm not here as a spectator. I'm not here as a consumer, a customer. I'm not just going to bounce when things get uncomfortable or difficult. And it communicates to the world that your relationship with God is a personal one, but it's also not a private one. It's lived out publicly in community as a functioning part of this living, breathing thing called the church that God is building. And I realize that there are many reasons that people may hesitate, even if they love Jesus and are following Jesus, may hesitate to becoming a part of the church. And I think one of the primary reasons, I may be wrong about this, but I think one of the primary reasons may be their previous experiences in church. I wonder if some of us have been hurt deeply by church, by churches, by local communities and local leaders and people that hurt you badly. My, my hope is that if that's you, that New Hope Fellowship would be a place of healing for you, a place of rest and renewal for you, a place where trust is reestablished. And I know that takes time, that's not easy. But I hope, I hope that what you will find as you patiently, humbly participate in life here, you will find the heart of Christ exhibited towards you. And you'll find that his healing, peacemaking, loving character is exhibited towards you in this family. I pray that that's the case. What I've tried to do today is basically just give you a vision for the beauty of what God is building in the church. Next week, we'll start looking at some of these vows that we've taken. We all want, I think, to be a part of something that's bigger than us, don't we? We all want to be part of something that's meaningful and lasting. Well, God has called us by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and become part of the biggest thing ever built. The only truly lasting thing that we can be a part of, his kingdom, his household, made up of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, with one thing in common, faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the name above all names. Let's pray. Our Father, just as you called us today into worship through your word, you have called us into community with yourself and with each other. Lord, it seems that every good thing that's happened to us in life, it's because you've called us, you've welcomed us and brought us in. We pray that you'd help us to walk out our identity as your people, as a local body. Help us to humbly consider what you've called us to and to see the blessing that therein lies.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.